When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 16 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 16. Robert Audley Gets His Conge. The Christmas week was over, and one by one the country visitors dropped away from Audley Court. The fat squire and his wife abandoned the grey tapestried chamber, and left the black-browed warriors looming from the wall to scowl upon and threaten new guests, or to glare vengefully upon vacancy. The merry girls on the second story packed, or caused to be packed, their trunks and imperials, and tumbled gauze ball-dresses were taken home that had been brought fresh to Audley. Blundering old family chariots, with horses whose untrimmed fetlocks told of rougher work than even country roads, were brought round to the broad space before the grim oak door, and laden with chaotic heaps of womanly luggage. Pretty rosy faces peeped out of carriage windows to smile the last farewell upon the group at the hall door, as the vehicle rattled and rumbled under the ivied archway. Sir Michael was in request everywhere, shaking hands with the young sportsmen, kissing the rosy-cheeked girls— sometimes even embracing portly matrons who came to thank him for their pleasant visit, everywhere genial, hospitable, generous, happy, and beloved. The baronet hurried from room to room, from the hall to the stables, from the stables to the courtyard, from the courtyard to the arched gateway to speed the parting guest. My lady's yellow curls flashed hither and thither like wandering gleams of sunshine on these busy days of farewell. Her great blue eyes had a pretty, mournful look, in charming unison with the soft pressure of her little hand, and that friendly, though perhaps rather stereotyped speech, in which she told her visitors how she was so sorry to lose them, and how she didn't know what she should do till they came once more to enliven the court by their charming society. But however sorry my lady might be to lose her visitors, there was at least one guest whose society she was not deprived of. Robert Audley showed no intention of leaving his uncle's house. He had no professional duties, he said— Fig-tree Court was delightfully shady in hot weather, but there was a sharp corner round which the wind came in the winter months, armed with avenging rheumatisms and influenzas. Everybody was so good to him at the court, that really he had no inclination to hurry away. Sir Michael had but one answer to this. "'Stay, my dear boy! Stay, my dear Bob, as long as ever you like. I have no son, and you stand to me in the place of one. Make yourself agreeable to Lucy, and make the court your home as long as you live.' to which Robert would merely reply by grasping his uncle's hand vehemently, and muttering something about a jolly old prince. 
It was to be observed that there was sometimes a certain vague sadness in the young man's tone when he called Sir Michael a jolly old prince, some shadow of affectionate regret that brought a mist into Robert's eyes, as he sat in a corner of the room looking thoughtfully at the white-bearded baronet. Before the last of the young sportsmen departed, Sir Harry Towers demanded and obtained an interview with Miss Alicia Audley in the Oak Library, an interview in which considerable emotion was displayed by the stalwart young fox-hunter, so much emotion, indeed, and of such a genuine and honest character, that Alicia fairly broke down as she told him she should for ever esteem and respect him for his true and noble heart, but that he must never, never unless he wished to cause her the most cruel distress, ask more from her than this esteem and respect. Sir Harry left the library by the French window opening into the pond-garden. He strolled into that very lime-walk which George Talboys had compared to an avenue in a churchyard and under the leafless trees fought the battle of his brave young heart. "'What a fool I am to feel it like this!' he cried, stamping his foot upon the frosty ground. "'I always knew it would be so. I always knew that she was a hundred times too good for me. God bless her! How nobly and tenderly she spoke! How beautiful she looked with the crimson blushes under her brown skin, and the tears in her big grey eyes!' almost as handsome as the day she took the sunk fence, and let me put the brush in her hat as we rode home. God bless her! I can get over anything as long as she doesn't care for that sneaking lawyer. But I couldn't stand that." That sneaking lawyer, by which appellation Sir Harry alluded to Mr. Robert Audley, was standing in the hall, looking at a map of the Midland Counties, when Alicia came out of the library with red eyes, after her interview with the fox-hunting baronet. Robert, who was short-sighted, had his eyes within half an inch of the surface of the map as the young lady approached him. "'Yes,' he said. "'Norwich is in Norfolk, and that fool young Vincent said it was in Herefordshire. Ha! Huh, Alicia, is that you?' He turned round so as to intercept Miss Audley on her way to the staircase. "'Yes,' replied his cousin curtly, trying to pass him. "'Alicia, you have been crying.' The young lady did not condescend to reply. "'You have been crying, Alicia. Sir Harry Towers, of Towers Park, in the county of Hertfordshire, has been making you an offer of his hand, eh?' "'Have you been listening at the door, Mr. Audley?' "'I have not, Miss Audley. On principle I object to listen, and in practice I believe it to be a very troublesome proceeding. But I am a barrister, Miss Alicia, and able to draw a conclusion by induction.' "'Do you know what inductive evidence is, Miss Audley?' "'No,' replied Alicia, looking at her cousin as a handsome young panther might look at its daring tormentor. "'I thought not. I dare say Sir Harry would ask if it was a kind of new horse-ball. I knew by induction that the baronet was going to make you an offer. First, because he came downstairs with his hair parted on the wrong side, and his face as pale as a tablecloth. Secondly, because he couldn't eat any breakfast, and let his coffee go the wrong way. And thirdly, because he asked for an interview with you before he left the court. Well, how's it to be, Alicia? Do we marry the baronet, and is poor cousin Bob to be the best man at the wedding? "'Sir Harry Towers is a noble-hearted young man,' said Alicia, still trying to pass her cousin. "'But do we accept him? Yes or no?' Are we to be Lady Towers, with a superb estate in Hertfordshire, summer quarters for our hunters, and a drag with outriders to drive us across to Papa's place in Essex? Is it to be so, Alicia, or not?" 
"'What is that to you, Mr. Robert Audley?' cried Alicia passionately. "'What do you care what becomes of me, or whom I marry? If I married a chimney-sweep, you'd only lift up your eyebrows and say, "'Bless my soul, she always was eccentric.' "'I have refused Sir Harry Towers, but when I think of his generous and unselfish affection, and compare it with the heartless, lazy, selfish, supercilious indifference of other men, I've a good mind to run after him and tell him—' "'That you'll retract, and be my Lady Towers?' "'Yes.' "'Then don't, Alicia, don't,' said Robert Audley, grasping his cousin's slender wrist, and leading her upstairs. "'Come into the drawing-room with me, Alicia, my poor little cousin. My charming, impetuous, alarming little cousin. Sit down here in this mullioned window, and let us talk seriously, and leave off quarrelling if we can.' The cousins had the drawing-room all to themselves. Sir Michael was out, my lady in her own apartments, and poor Sir Harry Towers walking up and down upon the gravel walk, darkened with the flickering shadows of the leafless branches in the cold winter sunshine. "'My poor little Alicia,' said Robert, as tenderly as if he had been addressing some spoiled child, "'do you suppose that because people don't wear vinegar-tops, or part their hair on the wrong side, or conduct themselves altogether after the manner of well-meaning maniacs, by way of proving the vehemence of their passion. Do you suppose because of this, Alicia Audley, that they may not be just as sensible of the merits of a dear little warm-hearted and affectionate girl as ever their neighbours can be? Life is such a very troublesome matter, when all is said and done, that it's as well even to take its blessings quietly. I don't make a great howling, because I can get good cigars one door from the corner of Chancery Lane— and have a dear good girl for my cousin, but I am not the less grateful to Providence that it is so." Alicia opened her grey eyes to their widest extent, looking her cousin full in the face with a bewildered stare. Robert had picked up the ugliest and leanest of his attendant curs, and was placidly stroking the animal's ears. "'Is this all you have to say to me, Robert?' said Miss Audley, meekly. "'Well, yes, I think so.' replied her cousin, after considerable deliberation. "'I fancy that what I wanted to say was this. Don't marry the fox-hunting baronet if you like anybody else better. For if you'll only be patient and take life easily, and try and reform yourself of banging doors, bouncing in and out rooms, talking of the stables, and riding across country, I've no doubt the person you prefer will make you a very excellent husband.' "'Thank you, cousin,' said Miss Audley crimsoning with bright, indignant blushes up to the roots of her waving brown hair. "'But as you may not know the person I prefer, I think you had better not take upon yourself to answer for him.' Robert pulled the dog's ears thoughtfully for some moments. "'No, to be sure,' he said after a pause. "'Of course, if I don't know him. I thought I did.' "'Did you?' exclaimed Alicia and opening the door with a violence that made her cousin shiver, she bounced out of the drawing-room. "'I only said I thought I knew him,' Robert called after her, and then, as he sunk into an easy-chair, he murmured thoughtfully, "'Such a nice girl, too, if she didn't bounce.' So poor Sir Harry Towers rode away from Audley Court, looking very crestfallen and dismal. He had very little pleasure in returning to the stately mansion, hidden among sheltering oaks and venerable beeches. The square red-brick house, gleaming at the end of a long arcade of leafless trees, was to be forever desolate, he thought, since Alicia would not come to be its mistress. A hundred improvements planned and thought of were dismissed from his mind as useless now. 
the hunter that Jim the trainer was breaking in for a lady, the two pointer pups that were being reared for the next shooting season, the big black retriever that would have carried Alicia's parasol, the pavilion in the garden, disused since his mother's death, but which she had meant to have restored for Miss Audley. All these things were now so much vanity and vexation of spirit. "'What's the good of being rich if one has no one to help spend one's money?' said the young baronet. "'One only grows a selfish beggar, and takes to drinking too much port. It's a hard thing that a girl can refuse a true heart, and such stables as we've got at the park. It unsettles a man somehow.' Indeed, this unlooked-for rejection had very much unsettled the few ideas which made up the small sum of the baronet's mind. He had been desperately in love with Alicia ever since the last hunting season, when he had met her at the county ball. His passion, cherished through the slow monotony of a summer, had broken out afresh in the merry winter months, and the young man's mauvaise honte alone had delayed the offer of his hand. But he had never for a moment supposed that he would be refused— he was so used to the adulation of mothers who had daughters to marry, and of even the daughters themselves, he had been so accustomed to feel himself the leading personage in an assembly, although half the wits of the age had been there, and he could only say, Ha! to be sure, and, By Jove! hm! He had been so spoiled by the flatteries of bright eyes that looked, or seemed to look, the brighter when he drew near, that without being possessed of one shadow of personal vanity, he had yet come to think that he had only to make an offer to the prettiest girl in Essex to behold himself immediately accepted. "'Yes,' he would say complacently to some admiring satellite, "'I know I'm a good match, and I know what makes the gals so civil. They're very pretty, and they're very friendly to a fellow, but I don't care about them. They're all alike. They can only drop their eyes and say, "'Lor, Sir Harry, why do you call that curly black dog a retriever?' or, Oh, Sir Harry, and did the poor mare really sprain her pastern shoulder-blade? I haven't got much brains myself, I know, the baronet would add deprecatingly, and I don't want a strong-minded woman who writes books and wears green spectacles, but hang it, I like a gal who knows what she's talking about. So when Alicia said, No, or rather made that pretty speech about esteem and respect, which well-bred young ladies substitute for the obnoxious monosyllable, Sir Harry Towers felt that the whole fabric of the future he had built so complacently was shivered into a heap of dingy ruins. Sir Michael grasped him warmly by the hand just before the young man mounted his horse in the courtyard. "'I'm very sorry, Towers,' he said. "'You're as good a fellow as ever breathed, and would have made my girl an excellent husband. But you know there's a cousin, and I think that—' "'Don't say that, Sir Michael,' interrupted the fox-hunter energetically. "'I can get over anything but that.' A fellow whose hand upon the curb weighs half a ton. Why, he pulled the cavalier's mouth to pieces, sir, the day you let him ride the horse. A fellow who turns his collars down and eats bread and marmalade. No, no, Sir Michael. It's a queer world, but I can't think that of Miss Audley. There must be someone in the background, sir. It can't be the cousin. Sir Michael shook his head as the rejected suitor rode away. I don't know about that, he muttered. Bob's a good lad, and the girl might do worse. But he hangs back as if he didn't care for her. There's some mystery. There's some mystery. The old baronet said this in that semi-thoughtful tone with which we speak of other people's affairs. The shadows of the early winter twilight, gathering thickest under the low oak ceiling of the hall, and the quaint curve of the arched doorway, fell darkly round his handsome head. But the light of his declining life, 
his beautiful and beloved young wife, was near him, and he could see no shadows when she was by. She came skipping through the hall to meet him, and shaking her golden ringlets, buried her bright head on her husband's breast. "'So the last of our visitors is gone, dear, and we're all alone,' she said. "'Isn't that nice?' "'Yes, darling,' he answered fondly, stroking her bright hair. "'Except Mr. Robert Audley. How long is that nephew of yours going to stay here?' "'As long as he likes, my pet, he's always welcome,' said the baronet. And then, as if remembering himself, he added tenderly, "'But not unless his visit is agreeable to you, darling. Not if his lazy habits, or his smoking, or his dogs, or anything about him is displeasing to you.' Lady Audley pursed up her rosy lips, and looked thoughtfully at the ground. "'It isn't that,' she said, hesitatingly. "'Mr. Audley is a very agreeable young man, and a very honourable young man. But you know, Sir Michael, I'm rather a young aunt for such a nephew, and—' "'And what, Lucy?' asked the baronet fiercely. "'Poor Alicia is rather jealous of any attention Mr. Audley pays me, and—and I think it would be better for her happiness if your nephew were to bring his visit to a close.' "'He shall glow to-night, Lucy,' exclaimed Sir Michael. "'I am a blind, neglectful fool not to have thought of this before. My lovely little darling! It was scarcely just to Bob to expose the poor lad to your fascinations. I know him to be as good and true-hearted a fellow as ever breathed, but—but but he shall go to-night. But you won't be too abrupt, dear. You won't be rude. Rude? No, Lucy. I left him smoking in the lime-walk. I'll go and tell him that he must get out of the house in an hour. So in that leafless avenue, under whose gloomy shade George Tallboys had stood on that thunderous evening before the day of his disappearance— Sir Michael Audley told his nephew that the court was no home for him, and that my lady was too young and pretty to accept the attentions of a handsome nephew of eight and twenty. Robert only shrugged his shoulders and elevated his thick black eyebrows as Sir Michael delicately hinted all this. "'I have been attentive to my lady,' he said. "'She interests me.' And then, with a change in his voice, and an emotion not common to him, he turned to the baronet, and grasping his hand, exclaimed, God forbid, my dear uncle, that I should ever bring trouble upon such a noble heart as yours. God forbid that the slightest shadow of dishonour should ever fall upon your honoured head, least of all through agency of mine." The young man uttered these few words in a broken and disjointed fashion, in which Sir Michael had never heard him speak before, and then turning away his head, fairly broke down. He left the court that night, but he did not go far. Instead of taking the evening train for London, he went straight up to the little village of Mount Stanning, and walking into the neatly kept inn, asked Phoebe Marks if he could be accommodated with apartments. End of chapter 16「Chapter 17 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 17. At the Castle Inn. The little sitting-room into which Phoebe Marks ushered the baronet's nephew was situated on the ground floor, and only separated by a lath and plaster partition from the little bar-parlour occupied by the innkeeper and his wife. 
It seemed as though the wise architect who had superintended the building of the castle inn had taken especial care that nothing but the frailest and most flimsy material should be used, and that the wind, having a special fancy for this unprotected spot, should have full play for the indulgence of its caprices. To this end pitiful woodwork had been used instead of solid masonry, rickety ceilings had been propped up by fragile rafters, and beams that threatened on every stormy night to fall upon the heads of those beneath them, doors whose specialty was never to be shut, yet always to be banging, windows constructed with a peculiar view to letting in the draught when they were shut, and keeping out the air when they were open. The hand of genius had devised this lonely country inn, and there was not an inch of woodwork or a trowelful of plaster employed in all the rickety construction that did not offer its own peculiar weak point to every assault of its indefatigable foe. Robert looked around him with a feeble smile of resignation. It was a change, decidedly, from the luxurious comforts of Audley Court, and it was rather a strange fancy of the young barrister to prefer loitering at this dreary village hostelry to returning to his snug chambers in Figtree Court. But he had brought his Laris and Panatis with him, in the shape of his German pipe, his tobacco canister, half a dozen French novels, and his two ill-conditioned canine favourites, which sat shivering before the smoky little fire, barking shortly and sharply now and then, by way of hinting for some slight refreshment. While Mr. Robert Audley contemplated his new quarters, Phoebe Marks summoned a little village lad who was in the habit of running errands for her, and taking him into the kitchen, gave him a tiny note, carefully folded and sealed. "'You know Audley Court?' "'Yes, mum. If you'll run there with this letter to-night, and see that it's put safely in Lady Audley's hands, I'll give you a shilling.' "'Yes, mum. You understand? Ask to see my lady. You can say you have a message, not a note, mind, but a message from Phoebe Marks, and when you see her, give this into her own hand. Yes, mum. You won't forget? No, mum. Then be off with you. The boy waited for no second bidding, but in another moment was scuttling along the lonely high road, down the sharp descent that led to Audley. Phoebe Marks went to the window, and looked out at the black figure of the lad hurrying through the dusky winter evening. "'If there's any bad meaning in his coming here,' she thought, "'my lady will know of it in time, at any rate.' Phoebe herself brought the neatly arranged tea-tray, and the little covered dish of ham and eggs which had been prepared for this unlooked-for visitor. Her pale hair was as smoothly braided, and her light grey dress fitted as precisely as of old. The same neutral tints pervaded her person and her dress— no showy rose-coloured ribbons or rustling silk gown proclaimed the well-to-do innkeeper's wife. Phoebe Marks was a person who never lost her individuality. Silent and self-constrained, she seemed to hold herself within herself, and take no colour from the outer world. Robert looked at her thoughtfully as she spread the cloth, and drew the table nearer to the fireplace. "'That,' he thought, "'is a woman who could keep a secret.' The dogs looked rather suspiciously at the quiet figure of Mrs. Marks gliding softly about the room, from the teapot to the caddy, and from the caddy to the kettle singing on the hob. "'Will you pour out my tea for me, Mrs. Marks?' said Robert, seating himself on a horsehair-covered armchair, which fitted him as tightly in every direction as if he had been measured for it. "'You have come from the court, sir,' said Phoebe, as she handed Robert the sugar-basin. "'Yes, I only left my uncle's an hour ago.' "'And my lady, sir, was she quite well?' "'Yes, quite well.' "'As gay and light-hearted as ever, sir?' 
as gay and light-hearted as ever. Phoebe retired respectfully after having given Mr. Audley his tea, but as she stood with her hand upon the lock of the door, he spoke again. "'You knew Lady Audley when she was Miss Lucy Graham, did you not?' he asked. "'Yes, sir. I lived at Mrs. Dawson's when my lady was governess there.' "'Indeed. Was she long in the surgeon's family?' "'A year and a half, sir.' "'And she came from London?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And she was an orphan, I believe?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Always as cheerful as she is now?' "'Always, sir.' Robert emptied his teacup and handed it to Mrs. Marks. Their eyes met, a lazy look in his, and an active, searching glance in hers. "'This woman would be good in a witness-box,' he thought. "'It would take a clever lawyer to bother her in a cross-examination.' He finished his second cup of tea, pushed away his plate, fed his dogs, and lighted his pipe, while Phoebe carried off the tea-tray. The wind came whistling up across the frosty open country, and through the leafless woods, and rattled fiercely at the window-frames. There's a triangular draught from those two windows in the door that scarcely adds to the comfort of this apartment," murmured Robert, and there certainly are pleasanter sensations than that of standing up to one's knees in cold water. He poked the fire, patted his dogs, put on his greatcoat, rolled a rickety old sofa close to the hearth, wrapped his legs in his railway rug, and stretching himself at full length upon the narrow horsehair cushion, smoked his pipe and watched the bluish-gray wreaths curling upward to the dingy ceiling. "'No,' he murmured again, "'that is a woman who can keep a secret. A counsel for the prosecution could get very little out of her.' I have said that the bar-parlour was only separated from the sitting-room occupied by Robert by a lath and plaster partition. The young barrister could hear the two or three village tradesmen, and a couple of farmers laughing and talking round the bar, while Luke Marks served them from his stock of liquors. Very often he could even hear their words, especially the landlord's, for he spoke in a coarse, loud voice, and had a more boastful manner than any of his customers. "'The man is a fool,' said Robert, as he laid down his pipe. "'I'll go and talk to him by and by.' He waited till the few visitors to the castle had dropped away one by one, and when Luke Marks had bolted the door upon the last of his customers, he strolled quietly into the bar-parlour, where the landlord was seated with his wife. Phoebe was busy at a little table, upon which stood a prim work-box, with every reel of cotton and glistening steel bodkin in its appointed place. She was darning the coarse grey stockings that adorned her husband's awkward feet, but she did her work as daintily as if they had been my lady's delicate silken hose. I say that she took no colour from external things, and that the vague air of refinement that pervaded her nature clung to her as closely in the society of her boorish husband at the Castle Inn, as in Lady Audley's boudoir at the court. She looked up suddenly as Robert entered the bar-parlour. There was some shade of vexation in her pale grey eyes, which changed to an expression of anxiety, nay, rather of almost terror, as she glanced from Mr. Audley to Luke Marks. "'I've come in for a few minutes' chat before I go to bed,' said Robert, settling himself very comfortably before the cheerful fire. "'Would you object to a cigar, Mrs. Marks?' "'I mean, of course, to my smoking one.' he added explanatorily. "'Not at all, sir.' "'It would be a good un her objectin' to a bit of bacca,' growled Mr. Marks, "'when me and the customers smokes all day.' Robert lighted his cigar with a gilt-paper match of Phoebe's making that adorned the chimney-piece, and took half a dozen reflective puffs before he spoke. "'I want you to tell me all about Mount Stanning, Mr. Marks,' 
he said presently. "'Then that's pretty soon told,' replied Luke, with a harsh, grating laugh. "'Of all the dull holes as ever a man set foot in, this is about the dullest. Not that the business don't pay pretty tidy. I don't complain of that. But I should have liked a public at Chelmsford, or Brentwood, or Romford, or some place where there's a bit of life in the streets. And I might have had it,' he added discontentedly, "'if folks hadn't been so precious stingy.' As her husband muttered this complaint in a grumbling undertone, Phoebe looked up from her work and spoke to him. "'We forgot the brew-house door, Luke,' she said. "'Will you come with me and help me put up the bar?' "'The brew-house door can bide for to-night,' said Mr. Marks. "'I ain't a-goin' to move now. I've seated myself for a comfortable smoke.' He took a long clay pipe from a corner of the fender as he spoke, and began to fill it deliberately. "'I don't feel easy about that brew-house door, Luke,' remonstrated his wife. "'There are always tramps about, and they can get in easily when the bar isn't up.' "'Go and put the bar up yourself, then, can't you?' asked Mr. Marks. "'It's too heavy for me to lift.' "'Then let it bide, if you're too fine a lady to see to it yourself. You're very anxious all of a sudden about this here brew-house door. I suppose you don't want me to open my mouth to this here gent, that's about it.' Oh, you needn't frown at me to stop my speaking. You're always putting in your tongue and clipping off my words before I'd half said em, but I won't stand it. Do you hear? I won't stand it. Phoebe Marks shrugged her shoulders, folded her work, and shut her work-box, and crossing her hands in her lap, sat with her grey eyes fixed upon her husband's bull-like face. Then you don't particularly care to live at Mount Stanning, said Robert politely, as if anxious to change the conversation. "'No, I don't,' answered Luke. "'And I don't care who knows it. And as I said before, if folks hadn't been so precious stingy, I might have had a public and a thriving market-town instead of this tumble-down old place, where a man has his hair blowed off his head on a windy day. What's fifty pound, or what's a hundred pound? Luke! Luke! No, you're not going to stop my mouth with all your Luke Lukes.' answered Mr. Marks to his wife's remonstrance. "'I say again, what's a hundred pound?' "'No,' answered Robert Audley, with a wonderful distinctness, and addressing his words to Luke Marks, but fixing his eyes upon Phoebe's anxious face. "'What indeed is a hundred pounds to a man possessed of the power which you hold, or rather which your wife holds, over the person in question?' Phoebe's face, at all times almost colourless, seemed scarcely capable of growing paler, but as her eyelids drooped under Robert Audley's searching glance, a visible change came over the pallid hues of her complexion. "'A quarter to twelve, said Robert, looking at his watch. "'Late hours for such a quiet village as Mount Stanning. "'Good-night, my worthy host. "'Good-night, Mrs. Marks. "'You needn't send me my shaving water till nine o'clock to-morrow morning.'" End of chapter 17 Chapter Eighteen of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Eighteen Robert receives a visitor whom he had scarcely expected. 
Eleven o'clock struck the next morning, and found Mr. Robert Audley still lounging over the well-ordered little breakfast-table, with one of his dogs at each side of his armchair, regarding him with watchful eyes and open mouths, awaiting the expected morsel of ham or toast. Robert had a county paper on his knees, and made a feeble effort now and then to read the first page, which was filled with advertisements of farming stock, quack medicines, and other interesting matter. The weather had changed, and the snow, which had for the last few days been looming blackly in the frosty sky, fell in great feathery flakes against the windows, and lay piled in the little bit of garden-ground without. The long, lonely road leading toward Audley seemed untrodden by a footstep, as Robert Audley looked out at the wintry landscape. "'Lively,' he said, "'for a man used to the fascinations of Temple Bar.' As he watched the snowflakes falling every moment thicker and faster upon the lonely road, he was surprised by seeing a brougham driving slowly up the hill. "'I wonder what unhappy wretch has too restless a spirit to stop at home on such a morning as this,' he muttered, as he returned to the armchair by the fire. He had only reseated himself a few moments when Phoebe Marks entered the room to announce Lady Audley. "'Lady Audley! Pray beg her to come in,' said Robert." And then, as Phoebe left the room to usher in this unexpected visitor, he muttered between his teeth, "'A false move, my lady, and one I never looked for from you.'" Lucy Audley was radiant on this cold and snowy January morning. Other people's noses are rudely assailed by the sharp fingers of the grim ice-king, but not my lady's. Other people's lips turn pale and blue with the chilling influence of the bitter weather— but my lady's pretty little rosebud of a mouth retained its brightest colouring and cheeriest freshness. She was wrapped in the very sables which Robert Audley had brought from Russia, and carried a muff that the young man thought seemed almost as big as herself. She looked a childish, helpless, babified little creature, and Robert looked down upon her with some touch of pity in his eyes, as she came up to the hearth by which he was standing, and warmed her tiny gloved hands at the blaze. "'What a morning, Mr. Audley,' she said. "'What a morning!' "'Yes, indeed. Why did you come out in such weather?' "'Because I wished to see you, particularly.' "'Indeed?' "'Yes,' said my lady, with an air of considerable embarrassment, playing with the button of her glove, and almost wrenching it off in her restlessness. "'Yes, Mr. Audley. I felt that you had not been well treated, that—' that you had, in short, reason to complain, and that an apology was due to you. "'I do not wish for any apology, Lady Audley.' "'But you are entitled to one,' answered my lady quietly. "'Why, my dear Robert, should we be so ceremonious toward each other? You were very comfortable at Audley. We were very glad to have you there. But my dear silly husband must needs take it into his foolish head— that it is dangerous for his poor little wife's peace of mind to have a nephew of eight or nine and twenty smoking his cigars in her boudoir, and, behold, our pleasant little family circle is broken up. Lucy Audley spoke with that peculiar childish vivacity which seemed so natural to her, Robert looking down almost sadly at her bright, animated face. "'Lady Audley,' he said, "'Heaven forbid that either you or I should ever bring grief or dishonour upon my uncle's generous heart. Better, perhaps, that I should be out of the house. Better, perhaps, that I had never entered it.' My lady had been looking at the fire while her nephew spoke, but at his last word she lifted her head suddenly, 
and looked him full in the face with a wondering expression, an earnest, questioning gaze, whose full meaning the young barrister understood. "'Oh, pray do not be alarmed, Lady Audley,' he said gravely. "'You have no sentimental nonsense, no silly infatuation borrowed from Balzac or Dumas fils to fear from me. The benchers of the inner temple will tell you that Robert Audley is troubled with none of the epidemics whose outward signs are turn-down collars and Byronic neckties. I say that I wish I had never entered my uncle's house during the last year, but I say it with a far more solemn meaning than any sentimental one.' My lady shrugged her shoulders. "'If you insist on talking in enigmas, Mr. Audley,' she said, "'you must forgive a poor little woman if she declines to answer them.' Robert made no reply to this speech. "'But tell me,' said my lady, with an entire change of tone, "'what could have induced you to come up to this dismal place?' "'Curiosity.' "'Curiosity?' "'Yes, I felt an interest in that bull-necked man with the dark red hair and wicked grey eyes.' A dangerous man, my lady, a man in whose power I should not like to be. A sudden change came over Lady Audley's face. The pretty roseate flush faded out from her cheeks, and left them waxen white, and angry flashes lightened in her blue eyes. "'What have I done to you, Robert Audley?' she cried passionately. "'What have I done to you that you should hate me so?' He answered her very gravely. "'I had a friend, Lady Audley.' whom I loved very dearly, and since I have lost him I fear that my feelings toward other people are strangely embittered. You mean the Mr. Tallboys who went to Australia? Yes, I mean the Mr. Tallboys who I was told set out for Liverpool with the idea of going to Australia. And you do not believe in his having sailed for Australia? I do not. But why not? Forgive me, Lady Audley, if I decline to answer that question. "'As you please,' she said carelessly. "'A week after my friend disappeared,' continued Robert, "'I posted an advertisement to the Sydney and Melbourne papers, "'calling upon him, if he was in either city when the advertisement appeared, "'to write and tell me of his whereabouts, "'and also calling on any one who had met him, "'either in the colonies or on the voyage out, "'to give me any information respecting him. "'George Tallboys left Essex, or disappeared from Essex, "'on the 6th of September last,' I ought to receive some answer to this advertisement by the end of this month. To-day is the twenty-seventh. The time draws very near. "'And if you receive no answer?' asked Lady Audley. "'If I receive no answer, I shall think that my fears have been not unfounded, and I shall do my best to act.' "'What do you mean by that?' "'Ah, Lady Audley, you remind me how very powerless I am in this matter. My friend might have been made away with in this very inn.' and I might stay here for a twelve-month, and go away at the last as ignorant of his fate as if I had never crossed the threshold. What do we know of the mysteries that may hang about the houses we enter? If I were to go to-morrow into that commonplace, plebeian, eight-roomed house in which Maria Manning and her husband murdered their guest, I should have no awful prescience of that bygone horror. Foul deeds have been done under the most hospitable roofs. Terrible crimes have been committed amidst the fairest scenes— and have left no trace upon the spot where they were done. I do not believe in mandrake, or in blood-stains that no time can efface. I believe rather that we may walk unconsciously in an atmosphere of crime, and breathe none the less freely. I believe that we may look into the smiling face of a murderer, 
and admire its tranquil beauty. My lady laughed at Robert's earnestness. "'You seem to have quite a taste for discussing these horrible subjects,' she said rather scornfully. "'You ought to have been a detective police officer.' "'I sometimes think I should have been a good one.' "'Why?' "'Because I am patient.' "'But to return to Mr. George Tallboys, whom we lost sight of in your eloquent discussion. What if you receive no answer to your advertisements?' "'I shall then consider myself justified in concluding my friend is dead.' "'Yes. And then?' "'I shall examine the effects he left at my chambers.' "'Indeed. And what are they? Coats, waistcoats, varnished boots, and meerschaum pipes, I suppose,' said Lady Audley, laughing. "'No. Letters. Letters from his friends, his old schoolfellows, his father, his brother officers.' "'Yes.' Letters, too, from his wife. My lady was silent for some moments, looking thoughtfully at the fire. "'Have you ever seen any of the letters written by the late Mrs. Tallboys?' she asked presently. "'Never. Poor soul! Her letters are not likely to throw much light upon my friend's fate. I dare say she wrote the usual womanly scrawl. There are very few who write so charming and uncommon a hand as yours, Lady Audley.' "'Ah! You know my hand, of course.' "'Yes, I know it very well, indeed.' My lady warmed her hands once more, and then taking up the big muff which she had laid aside upon a chair, prepared to take her departure. "'You have refused to accept my apology, Mr. Audley,' she said. "'But I trust you are not the less assured of my feelings toward you.' "'Perfectly assured, Lady Audley.' "'Then good-bye.' And let me recommend you not to stay long in this miserable, draughty place, if you do not wish to take rheumatism back to Figtree Court. I shall return to town to-morrow morning to see after my letters. Then once more, good-bye. She held out her hand. He took it loosely in his own. It seemed such a feeble little hand that he might have crushed it in his strong grasp, had he chosen to be so pitiless. He attended her to her carriage, and watched it as it drove off, not toward Audley, but in the direction of Brentwood, which was about six miles from Mount Stanning. About an hour and a half after this, as Robert stood at the door of the inn, smoking a cigar and watching the snow falling in the whitened fields opposite, he saw the brougham drive back, empty this time, to the door of the inn. "'Have you taken Lady Audley back to the court?' he said to the coachman, who had stopped to call for a mug of hot spiced ale. "'No, sir. I've just come from the Brentwood station.' My lady started for London by the 12.40 train. For town? Yes, sir. My lady gone to London, said Robert, as he returned to the little sitting-room. Then I'll follow her by the next train, and if I'm not very much mistaken, I know where to find her. He packed his portmanteau, paid his bill, fastened his dogs together with a couple of leathern collars and a chain, and stepped into the rumbling fly capped by the castle inn for the convenience of Mount Stanning. He caught an express that left Brentwood at three o'clock, and settled himself comfortably in a corner of an empty first-class carriage, coiled up in a couple of railway rugs, and smoking a cigar in mild defiance of the authorities. End of chapter 18
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 19 The Writing in the Book. It was exactly five minutes past four as Mr. Robert Audley stepped out upon the platform at Shoreditch, and waited placidly until such time as his dogs and his portmanteau should be delivered up to the attendant porter who had called his cab, and undertaken the general conduct of his affairs, with that disinterested courtesy which does such infinite credit to a class of servitors, who are forbidden to accept the tribute of a grateful public. Robert Audley waited with consummate patience for a considerable time, but as the express was generally a long train, and as there were a great many passengers from Norfolk carrying guns and pointers, and other paraphernalia of a critical description, it took a long while to make matters agreeable to all claimants, and even the barrister's seraphic indifference to mundane affairs nearly gave way. "'Perhaps when that gentleman who is making such a noise about a pointer with livered-coloured spots has discovered the particular pointer and spots that he wants, which happy combination of events scarcely seems likely to arrive, they'll give me my luggage and let me go. The designing wretches knew what a glance that I was born to be imposed upon, and that if they were to trample the life out of me upon this very platform, I should never have the spirit to bring an action against the company.' Suddenly an idea seemed to strike him— and he left the porter to struggle for the custody of his goods, and walked round to the other side of the station. He heard a bell ring, and, looking at the clock, had remembered that the down train for Colchester started at this time. He had learned what it was to have an earnest purpose since the disappearance of George Tallboys, and he reached the opposite platform in time to see the passengers take their seats. There was one lady who had evidently only just arrived at the station, for she hurried on to the platform at the very moment that Robert approached the train— and almost ran against that gentleman in her haste and excitement. "'I beg your pardon,' she began ceremoniously. Then, raising her eyes from Mr. Audley's waistcoat, which was about on a level with her pretty face, she exclaimed, "'Robert, you in London already?' "'Yes, Lady Audley, you were quite right. The Castle Inn is a dismal place, and—' "'You got tired of it. I knew you would. Please open the carriage door for me. The train will start in two minutes.' Robert Audley was looking at his uncle's wife with rather a puzzled expression of countenance. "'What does it mean?' he thought. "'She is altogether a different being to the wretched, helpless creature who dropped her mask for a moment, and looked at me with her own pitiful face in the little room at Mount Stanning four hours ago. What has happened to cause the change?' He opened the door for her while he thought this, and helped her to settle herself in her seat— spreading her furs over her knees and arranging the huge velvet mantle in which her slender little figure was almost hidden. "'Thank you very much. How good you are to me,' she said, as he did this. "'You will think me very foolish to travel upon such a day. Without my dear darling's knowledge, too. But I went up to town to settle a very terrific milliner's bill, which I did not wish my best of husbands to see. For indulgent as he is, he might think me extravagant.' and I cannot bear to suffer even in his thoughts. "'Heaven forbid that you ever should, Lady Audley,' Robert said gravely. She looked at him for a moment with a smile, which had something defiant in its brightness. "'Heaven forbid it indeed,' she murmured. "'I don't think I ever shall.' The second bell rung, and the train moved as she spoke. The last Robert Audley saw of her was that bright, defiant smile. 
"'Whatever object brought her to London has been successfully accomplished,' he thought. "'Has she baffled me by some piece of womanly jugglery? Am I never to get any nearer to the truth? But am I to be tormented all my life by vague doubts and wretched suspicions, which may grow upon me until I become a monomaniac? Why did she come to London?' He was still mentally asking himself this question as he ascended the stairs in Fig-tree Court, with one of his dogs under each arm, and his railway rugs over his shoulder. He found his chambers in their accustomed order. The geraniums had been carefully tended, and the canaries had retired for the night under cover of a square of green bays, testifying to the care of honest Mrs. Maloney. Robert cast a hurried glance round the sitting-room, then setting down the dogs upon the hearth-rug, he walked straight into the little inner chamber which served as his dressing-room. It was in this room that he kept disused portmanteaus, battered japanned cases, and other lumber, and it was in this room that George Tallboys had left his luggage. Robert lifted a portmanteau from the top of a large trunk, and kneeling down before it with a lighted candle in his hand, carefully examined the lock. To all appearance it was exactly in the same condition in which George had left it, when he laid his mourning garments aside and placed them in this shabby repository with all other memorials of his dead wife. Robert brushed his coat-sleeve across the worn, leather-covered lid, upon which the initials G.T. were inscribed with big, brass-headed nails. But Mrs. Maloney, the laundress, must have been the most precise of housewives, for neither the portmanteau nor the trunk were dusty. Mr. Audley dispatched a boy to fetch his Irish attendant, and paced up and down his sitting-room waiting anxiously for her arrival. She came in about ten minutes, and after expressing her delight in the return of the master, humbly awaited his orders. "'I only sent for you to ask if anybody has been here to-day. That is to say, if anybody has applied to you for the key of my rooms to-day. Any lady?' "'Lady? No, indeed, Your Honour. There's been no lady for the key. Barnet's the blacksmith.' "'The blacksmith?' "'Yes, the blacksmith your honour ordered to come to-day.' "'I ordered a blacksmith!' exclaimed Robert. "'I left a bottle of French brandy in the cupboard,' he thought, "'and Mrs. M. has evidently been enjoying herself.' "'Sure, and the blacksmith your honour told to see to the locks,' replied Mrs. Maloney. "'It's him that lives down on one of the little streets by the bridge,' she added, giving a very lucid description of the man's whereabouts. Robert lifted his eyebrows in mute despair. "'If you'll sit down and compose yourself, Mrs. M,' he said. He abbreviated her name thus on principle, for the avoidance of unnecessary labour. "'Perhaps we shall be able by and by to understand each other. You say a blacksmith has been here?' "'Sure, and I did, sir.' "'To-day?' "'Quite correct, sir.' Step by step Mr. Audley elicited the following information. A locksmith had called upon Mrs. Maloney that afternoon at three o'clock, and had asked for the key of Mr. Audley's chambers, in order that he might look to the locks of the doors, which he stated were all out of repair. He declared that he was acting upon Mr. Audley's own orders, conveyed to him by a letter from the country, where the gentleman was spending his Christmas. Mrs. Maloney, believing in the truth of this statement, had admitted the man to the chambers, where he stayed about a half-hour. "'But you were with him while he examined the locks, I suppose?' Mr. Audley asked. "'Sure I was, sir, in and out, as you may say, all the time, for I've been cleaning the stairs this afternoon, and I took the opportunity to begin my scouring while the man was at work.' "'Oh, you were in and out all the time. If you could conveniently give me a plain answer, Mrs. M., I should be glad to know what was the longest time that you were out while the locksmith was in my chambers.' 
but Mrs. Maloney could not give a plain answer. It might have been ten minutes, though she didn't think it was as much. It might have been a quarter of an hour, but she was sure it wasn't more. It didn't seem to her more than five minutes, but— them stairs, your honour, and here she rambled off into a disquisition upon the scouring of stairs in general, and the stairs outside Robert's chambers in particular. Mr. Audley sighed the weary sigh of mournful resignation. "'Never mind, Mrs. M,' he said. "'The locksmith had plenty of time to do anything he wanted to do, I dare say, without your being any the wiser.' Mrs. Maloney stared at her employer with mingled surprise and alarm. "'Sure, there wasn't anything for him to stale, Your Honour, bar on the birds and the geraniums, and—no, no, I understand. There, that'll do, Mrs. M. Tell me where the man lives, and I'll go and see him.' "'But you'll have a bit of dinner first, sir.' "'I'll go and see the locksmith before I have my dinner.' He took up his hat as he announced his determination, and walked towards the door. "'The man's address, Mrs. M.' The Irishwoman directed him to a small street at the back of St. Bride's Church, and thither Mr. Robert Audley quietly strolled, through the miry slush which simple Londoners call snow. He found the locksmith, and at the sacrifice of the crown of his hat, contrived to enter the low, narrow doorway of a little open shop. A jet of gas was flaring in the unglazed window, and there was a very merry party in the little room behind the shop, but no one responded to Robert's, "'Hello!' The reason of this was sufficiently obvious. The merry party was so much absorbed in its own merriment as to be deaf to all commonplace summonses from the outer world, and it was only when Robert, advancing further into the cavernous little shop, made so bold as to open the half-glass door which separated him from the merrymakers, that he succeeded in obtaining their attention. A very jovial picture of the Teniers school was presented to Mr. Robert Audley upon the opening of this door. The locksmith, with his wife and family, and two or three droppers-in of the female sex, were clustered about a table which was adorned by two bottles, not vulgar bottles of that colourless extract of the juniper-berry, much affected by the masses, but of bona fide port and sherry, fiercely strong sherry, which left a fiery taste in the mouth, nut-brown sherry, rather unnaturally brown, if anything, and fine old port, no sickly vintage, faded and thin from excessive age, but a rich, full-bodied wine, sweet and substantial and high-coloured. The locksmith was speaking as Robert Audley opened the door. "'And with that,' he said, "'she walked off as graceful as you please.' The whole party was thrown into confusion by the appearance of Mr. Audley, but it was to be observed that the locksmith was more embarrassed than his companions. He set his glass down so hurriedly that he spilt his wine, and wiped his mouth nervously with the back of his dirty hand. "'You called at my chambers to-day,' Robert said quietly. "'Don't let me disturb you, ladies,' this to the droppers-in. "'You called at my chambers to-day, Mr. White, and—the man interrupted him. "'I hope, sir, you will be so good as to look over the mistake,' he stammered. "'I'm sure, sir, I'm very sorry it should have occurred. "'I was sent for to another gentleman's chambers, Mr. Alwyn, in Garden Court, and the name slipped my memory.' and haven't done odd jobs before for you, I thought it must be you as wanted me to-day, and I called at Miss Maloney's for the key accordin, but directly I see the locks in your chambers, I says to myself, the gentleman's locks ain't out of order, the gentleman don't want all his locks repaired. But you stayed half an hour. Yes, sir, for there was one lock out of order, the door nighest the staircase, and I took it off and cleaned it and put it on again. 
I won't charge you nothing for the job, and I hope as you'll be as good as to look over the mistake as has occurred, which I've been in business thirteen years come July, and— "'Nothing of this kind ever happened before, I suppose,' said Robert gravely. "'No, it's altogether a singular kind of business, not likely to come about every day. "'You've been enjoying yourself this evening, I see, Mr. White. "'You've done a good stroke of work to-day, I'll wager, made a lucky hit, "'and you're what you call standing treat, eh?' Robert Audley looked straight into the man's dingy face as he spoke. The locksmith was not a bad-looking fellow— and there was nothing that he need have been ashamed of in his face except the dirt, and that, as Hamlet's mother says, is common. But in spite of this, Mr. White's eyelids dropped under the young barrister's calm scrutiny, and he stammered out some apologetic sort of speech about his missus, and his missus's neighbours, and port wine and sherry wine, with as much confusion as if he, an honest mechanic in a free country, were called upon to excuse himself to Robert Audley for being caught in the act of enjoying himself in his own parlour. Robert cut him short with a careless nod. "'Pray don't apologize,' he said. "'I like to see people enjoy themselves. Good night, Mr. White. Good night, ladies.' He lifted his hat to the missus, and the missus's neighbours, who were much fascinated by his easy manner and his handsome face, and left the shop. "'And so,' he muttered to himself when he went back to his chambers, "'with that she walked off as graceful as you please. Who was it that walked off?' And what was the story which the locksmith was telling when I interrupted him at that sentence? Oh, George Tallboys! George Tallboys! Am I ever to come any nearer to the secret of your fate? Am I coming nearer it now, slowly but surely? Is the radius to grow narrower day by day until it draws a dark circle around the home of those I love? How is it all to end? He sighed wearily as he walked slowly back across the flagged quadrangles in the temple to his own solitary chambers. Mrs. Maloney had prepared for him that bachelor's dinner, which, however excellent and nutritious in itself, has no claim to the special charm of novelty. She had cooked for him a mutton-chop, which was soddening itself between two plates upon the little table near the fire. Robert Audley sighed as he sat down to the familiar meal, remembering his uncle's cook with a fond, regretful sorrow. Her cutlets a la Maintenon made mutton seem more than mutton, a sublimated meat that could scarcely have grown upon any mundane sheep, he murmured sentimentally, and Mrs. Maloney's chops are apt to be tough. But such is life. What does it matter? He pushed away his plate impatiently after eating a few mouthfuls. I have never eaten a good dinner at this table since I lost George Tallboys, he said. The place seems as gloomy as if the poor fellow had died in the next room— it had never been taken away to be buried. How long ago that September afternoon appears as I look back at it, that September afternoon upon which I parted with him alive and well, and lost him as suddenly and unaccountably as if a trap-door had opened in the solid earth and led him through to the Antipodes. Mr. Audley rose from the dinner-table, and walked over to the cabinet in which he kept the document he had drawn up relating to George Tallboys. He unlocked the doors of his cabinet— took the paper from the pigeon-hole marked important, and seated himself at his desk to write. He added several paragraphs to those in the document, numbering the fresh paragraphs as carefully as he had numbered the old ones. "'Heaven help us all,' he muttered once. "'Is this paper with which no attorney has had any hand to be my first brief?' He wrote for about half an hour, then replaced the document in the pigeon-hole, and locked the cabinet. When he had done this, he took a candle in his hand— 
and went into the room in which were his own portmanteaus and the trunk belonging to George Talboys. He took a bunch of keys from his pocket and tried them one by one. The lock of the shabby old trunk was a common one, and at the fifth trial the key turned easily. "'There'd be no need for any one to break open a lock such as this,' muttered Robert, as he lifted the lid of the trunk. He slowly emptied it of its contents, taking out each article separately, and laying it carefully upon a chair by his side. He handled the things with a respectful tenderness, as if he had been lifting the dead body of his lost friend. One by one he laid the neatly folded morning garments on the chair. He found old meerschaum pipes, and soiled, crumpled gloves that had once been fresh from the Parisian maker, old playbills, whose biggest letters spelled the names of actors who were dead and gone, old perfume-bottles, fragrant with essences, whose fashion had passed away, neat little parcels of letters, each carefully labelled with the name of the writer, fragments of old newspapers, and a little heap of shabby, dilapidated books, each of which tumbled into as many pieces as a pack of cards in Robert's incautious hand. But among all the mass of worthless litter, each scrap of which had once had its separate purpose, Robert Audley looked in vain for that which he sought, the packet of letters written to the missing man by his dead wife, Helen Talboys. He had heard George allude more than once to the existence of these letters. He had seen him once sorting the faded papers with a reverent hand, and he had seen him replace them, carefully tied together with a faded ribbon which had once been Helen's, among the mourning garments in the trunk. Whether he had afterward removed them, or whether they had been removed since his disappearance by some other hand, it was not easy to say. But they were gone. Robert Audley sighed wearily as he replaced the things in the empty box, one by one, as he had taken them out. He stopped with a little heap of tattered books in his hand, and hesitated for a moment. "'I will keep these out,' he muttered. "'There may be something to help me in one of them.'" George's library was no very brilliant collection of literature. There was an old Greek testament, and the Eton Latin grammar, a French pamphlet on the cavalry sword exercise, an odd volume of Tom Jones with one half of its stiff leather cover hanging to it by a thread, Byron's Don Juan, printed in a murderous type, which must have been invented for the special advantage of oculists and opticians, and a fat book in a faded gilt and crimson cover. Robert Audley locked the trunk and took the books under his arm. Mrs. Maloney was clearing away the remains of his repast when he returned to the sitting-room. He put the books aside on a little table in a corner of the fireplace, and waited patiently while the laundress finished her work. He was in no humour even for his meerschaum consoler. The yellow-papered fictions on the shelves above his head seemed stale and profitless. He opened a volume of Balzac, but his uncle's wife's golden curls danced and trembled in a glittering haze, alike upon the metaphysical diablerie of the Peau de Chagrin, and the hideous social horrors of Cousin Bette. The volume dropped from his hand, and he sat wearily watching Mrs. Maloney, as she swept up the ashes on the hearth, replenished the fire, drew the dark damask curtains, supplied the simple wants of the canaries, and put on her bonnet in the disused clerk's office, prior to bidding her employer good-night. As the door closed upon the Irishwoman, he arose impatiently from his chair, and paced up and down the room. "'Why do I go on with this?' he said. "'When I know that it is leading me, step by step, day by day, hour by hour, nearer to that conclusion which, of all others, I should avoid. Am I tied to a wheel? And must I go with its every revolution, letting it take me where it will? Or can I sit down here to-night, 
and say I have done my duty to my missing friend. I have searched for him patiently, but I have searched in vain. Should I be justified in doing this? Should I be justified in letting the chain which I have slowly put together, link by link, drop at this point? Or must I go on, adding fresh links to that fatal chain, until the last rivet drops into its place, and the circle is complete? I think, and I believe, that I shall never see my friend's face again, and that no exertion of mine can ever be of any benefit to him. In plainer, crueler words, I believe him to be dead. Am I bound to discover how and where he died? Or being, as I think, on the road to that discovery, shall I do a wrong to the memory of George Tallboys by turning back or stopping still? What am I to do? What am I to do? He rested his elbows on his knees, and buried his face in his hands. The one purpose which had slowly grown up in his careless nature, until it had become powerful enough to work a change in that very nature, made him what he had never been before, a Christian. Conscious of his own weakness, anxious to keep to the strict line of duty, fearful to swerve from the conscientious discharge of the strange task that had been forced upon him, and reliant on a stronger hand than his own to point the way which he was to go. Perhaps he uttered his first earnest prayer that night, seated by his lonely fireside, thinking of George Tallboys. When he raised his head from that long and silent reverie, his eyes had a bright, determined glance, and every feature in his face seemed to wear a new expression. "'Justice to the dead first, he said. "'Mercy to the living afterward.' He wheeled his easy-chair to the table, trimmed the lamp, and settled himself to the examination of the books. He took them up, one by one, and looked carefully through them, first looking at the page on which the name of the owner is ordinarily written, and then searching for any scrap of paper which might have been left within the leaves. On the first page of the Eton Latin grammar, the name of Master Tallboys was written in a prim, scholastic hand. The French pamphlet had a careless G.T. scrawled on the cover in pencil, in George's big, slovenly calligraphy. The Tom Jones had evidently been bought at a bookstall, and bore an inscription dated March 14, 1788, setting forth that the book was a tribute of respect to Mr. Thomas Scroton, from his obedient servant James Anderley. The Don Juan and the Testament were blank. Robert Audley breathed more freely. He had arrived at the last but one of the books without any result whatever, and there only remained the fat, gilt-and-crimson-bound volume to be examined before his task was finished. It was an annual of the year 1845. The copper-plate engravings of lovely ladies, who had flourished in that day, were yellow and spotted with mildew. The costumes grotesque and outlandish, the simpering beauties faded and commonplace. Even the little clusters of verses, in which the poet's feeble candle shed its sickly light upon the obscurities of the artist's meaning, had an old-fashioned twang, like music on a lyre whose strings are slackened by the damps of time. Robert Audley did not stop to read any of the mild productions. He ran rapidly through the leaves, looking for any scrap of writing, or fragment of a letter which might have been used to mark a place. He found nothing but a bright ring of golden hair, of that glittering hue which is so rarely seen except upon the head of a child, a sunny lock, which curled as naturally as the tendril of a vine, and was very opposite in texture, if not different in hue, to the soft, smooth tresses which the landlady at Ventnor had given to George Tallboys after his wife's death. Robert Audley suspended his examination of the book, and folded this yellow lock in a sheet of letter-paper, which he sealed with his signet-ring, 
and laid aside with the memorandum about George Talboy's and Alicia's letter, in the pigeonhole marked important. He was going to replace the fat annual among the other books, when he discovered that the two blank leaves at the beginning were stuck together. He was so determined to prosecute his search to the very uttermost, that he took the trouble to part these leaves with the sharp end of his paper-knife, and he was rewarded for his perseverance by finding an inscription upon one of them. This inscription was in three parts, and in three different hands. The first paragraph was dated as far back as the year in which the annual had been published, and set forth that the book was the property of a certain Miss Elizabeth Ann Bince, who had obtained the precious volume as a reward for habits of order, and for obedience to the authorities of Camford House Seminary, Torquay. The second paragraph was dated five years later, and was in the handwriting of Miss Bince herself, who presented the book as a mark of undying affection and unfading esteem, Miss Bince was evidently of a romantic temperament, to her beloved friend, Helen Malden. The third paragraph was dated September, 1853, and was in the hand of Helen Malden, who gave the annual to George Talboys, and it was at the sight of this third paragraph that Mr. Robert Audley's face changed from its natural hue to a sickly, leaden pallor. "'I thought it would be so,' said the young man, shutting the book with a weary sigh. "'God knows I was prepared for the worst, and the worst has come. I can understand all now. My next visit must be to Southampton. I must place the boy in better hands.'" End of chapter 19 Chapter Twenty of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty. Mrs. Plowson. Among the packet of letters which Robert Audley had found in George's trunk. There was one labelled with the name of the missing man's father, the father who had never been too indulgent a friend to his younger son, and who had gladly availed himself of the excuse afforded by George's imprudent marriage to abandon the young man to his own resources. Robert Audley had never seen Mr. Harcourt Tallboys, but George's careless talk of his father had given his friend some notion of that gentleman's character. He had written to Mr. Tallboys immediately after the disappearance of George, carefully wording his letter which vaguely hinted at the writer's fear of some foul play in the mysterious business, and after the lapse of several weeks, he had received a formal epistle, in which Mr. Harcourt Tallboys expressly declared that he had washed his hands of all responsibility in his son George's affairs upon the young man's wedding-day, and that his absurd disappearance was only in character with his preposterous marriage. The writer of this fatherly letter added in a postscript that if George Tallboys had any low design of alarming his friends by this pretended disappearance, and thereby playing on their feelings with a view to pecuniary advantage, he was most egregiously deceived in the character of those persons with whom he had to deal. Robert Audley had answered this letter by a few indignant lines, informing Mr. Tallboys that his son was scarcely likely to hide himself for the furtherance of any deep-laid design on the pocket of his relatives, as he had left twenty thousand pounds in his banker's hands at the time of his disappearance. After dispatching this letter, Robert had abandoned all thought of assistance from the man who, in the natural course of things, should have been most interested in George's fate, 
but now that he found himself advancing every day some step nearer to the end that lay so darkly before him, his mind reverted to this heartlessly indifferent Mr. Harkett Tallboys. "'I will run into Dorsetshire after I leave Southampton,' he said, "'and see this man. If he is content to let his son's fate rest a dark and cruel mystery to all who knew him, if he is content to go down to his grave uncertain to the last of this poor fellow's end, why should I try to unravel the tangled skein, to fit the pieces of the terrible puzzle, and gather together the stray fragments which, when collected, may make such a hideous whole? I will go to him and lay my darkest doubts freely before him. It will be for him to say what I am to do." Robert Audley started by an early express for Southampton. The snow lay thick and white upon the pleasant country through which he went, and the young barrister had wrapped himself in so many comforters and railway rugs as to appear a perambulating mass of woollen goods, rather than a living member of a learned profession. He looked gloomily out of a misty window, opaque with the breath of himself and an elderly Indian officer who was his only companion, and watched the fleeting landscape, which had a certain phantom-like appearance in its shroud of snow. He wrapped himself in the vast folds of his railway rug, with a peevish shiver, and felt inclined to quarrel with the destiny which compelled him to travel by an early train upon a pitiless winter's day. "'Who would have thought that I could have grown so fond of the fellow?' he muttered. "'Or feel so lonely without him. I've a comfortable little fortune in the three percents. I'm heir presumptive to my uncle's title. And I know of a certain dear little girl who, as I think, would do her best to make me happy. But I declare that I would freely give up all, and stand penniless in the world to-morrow, if this mystery could be satisfactorily cleared away, and George Tallboys could stand by my side." He reached Southampton between eleven and twelve o'clock, and walked across the platform, with the snow drifting in his face, toward the pier and the lower end of the town. The clock of St. Michael's Church was striking twelve as he crossed the quaint old square in which that edifice stands and groped his way through the narrow streets leading down to the water. Mr. Malden had established his slovenly household gods in one of those dreary thoroughfares which speculative builders love to raise upon some miserable fragment of waste-ground, hanging to the skirts of a prosperous town. Brigsome's Terrace was, perhaps, one of the most dismal blocks of buildings that was ever composed of brick and mortar, since the first mason plied his trowel and the first architect drew his plan. The builder who had speculated in the ten dreary eight-room prison-houses had hung himself behind the parlour-door of an adjacent tavern while the carcasses were yet unfinished. The man who had bought the brick-and-mortar skeletons had gone through the bankruptcy court while the paper-hangers were still busy in Brigsome's Terrace, and had whitewashed his ceilings and himself simultaneously. Ill-luck and insolvency clung to the wretched habitations. The bailiff and the broker's man were as well known as the butcher and the baker, to the noisy children who played upon the waste-ground in front of the parlour windows. Solvent tenants were disturbed at unhallowed hours by the noise of ghostly furniture vans creeping stealthily away in the moonless night. Insolvent tenants openly defied the collector of the water-rate from their ten-roomed strongholds, and existed for weeks without any visible means of procuring that necessary fluid. Robert Audley looked about him with a shudder as he turned from the waterside into this poverty-stricken locality. A child's funeral was leaving one of the houses as he approached, and he thought with a thrill of horror that if the little coffin had held George's son, he would have been in some measure responsible for the boy's death. "'The poor child shall not sleep another night in this wretched hovel,' he thought, as he knocked at the door of Mr. Malden's house. "'He is the legacy of my best friend, 
and it shall be my business to secure his safety. A slipshod servant-girl opened the door and looked at Mr. Audley rather suspiciously as she asked him, very much through her nose, what he pleased to want. The door of the little sitting-room was ajar, and Robert could hear the clattering of knives and forks and the childish voice of little George prattling gaily. He told the servant that he had come from London, that he wanted to see Master Tallboys, and that he would announce himself, and walking past her without further ceremony, he opened the door of the parlour. The girl stared at him aghast as he did this, and as if struck by some sudden and terrible conviction, threw her apron over her head and ran out into the snow. She darted across the waste-ground, plunged into a narrow alley, and never drew breath till she found herself upon the threshold of a certain tavern called the Coach and Horses, and much affected by Mr. Malden. The lieutenant's faithful retainer had taken Robert Audley for some new and determined collector of poor's rates, rejecting that gentleman's account of himself as an artful fiction devised for the destruction of parochial defaulters, and had hurried off to give her master timely warning of the enemy's approach. When Robert entered the sitting-room he was surprised to find little Georgie seated opposite to a woman who was doing the honours of a shabby repast, spread upon a dirty tablecloth, and flanked by a pewter beer-measure. The woman rose as Robert entered, and curtsied very humbly to the young barrister. She looked about fifty years of age, and was dressed in rusty widow's weeds. Her complexion was insipidly fair, and the two smooth bands of hair beneath her cap were of that sunless, flaxen hue which generally accompanies pink cheeks and white eyelashes. She had been a rustic beauty, perhaps, in her time, but her features, although tolerably regular in their shape, had a mean, pinched look as if they had been made too small for her face. This defect was peculiarly noticeable in her mouth, which was an obvious misfit for the set of teeth it contained. She smiled as she curtsied to Mr. Robert Audley, and her smile, which laid bare the greater part of this set of square, hungry-looking teeth, by no means added to the beauty of her personal appearance. "'Mr. Malden is not at home, sir,' she said, with insinuating civility. "'But if it's for the water-rate, he requested me to say that—' She was interrupted by little George Tallboys, who scrambled down from the high chair upon which she had been perched, and ran to Robert Audley. "'I know you,' he said. "'You came to Ventnor with the big gentleman, and you came here once, and you gave me some money, and I gave it to Grandpa to take care of, and Grandpa kept it, and he always does.' Robert Audley took the boy in his arms, and carried him to a little table in the window. "'Stand there, Georgie,' he said. "'I want to have a good look at you.' He turned the boy's face to the light, and pushed the brown curls off his forehead with both hands. "'You are growing more like your father every day, Georgie. And you're growing quite a man, too,' he said. "'Would you like to go to school?' "'Oh, yes, please, I should like it very much,' the boy answered eagerly. "'I went to school at Miss Pevins's once—day school, you know—round the corner in the next street. But I caught the measles, and Grandpa wouldn't let me go any more, for fear I should catch the measles again. And Grandpa won't let me play with the little boys in the street, because they're rude boys. He said blackguard boys. But he said I mustn't say blackguard boys, because it's naughty. He says damn and devil, but he says he may, because he's old. I shall say damn and devil when I'm old. And I should like to go to school, please, and I can go to-day, if you like. Mrs. Plowson will get my frocks ready, won't you, Mrs. Plowson? "'Certainly, Master Georgie, if your grandpapa wishes it,' the woman answered, looking rather uneasily at Mr. Robert Audley. "'What on earth is the matter with this woman?' 
thought Robert, as he turned from the boy to the fair-haired widow, who was edging herself slowly toward the table upon which little George Tallboys stood talking to his guardian. "'Does she still take me for a tax-collector with inimical intentions toward these wretched goods and chattels? Or can the cause of her fidgety manner lie deeper still? That's scarcely likely, though. For whatever secrets Lieutenant Malden may have, it's not very probable that this woman has any knowledge of them.' Mrs. Plowson had edged herself close to the little table by this time, and was making a stealthy descent upon the boy, when Robert turned sharply round. "'What are you going to do with the child?' he said. "'I was only going to take him away to wash his pretty face, sir, and smooth his hair,' answered the woman, in the most insinuating tone in which she had spoken of the water-rate. "'You don't see him to any advantage, sir, while his precious face is dirty. I won't be five minutes making him as neat as a new pen.' She had her long, thin arms about the boy as she spoke, and was evidently going to carry him off bodily, when Robert stopped her. "'I'd rather see him as he is, thank you,' he said. "'My time in Southampton isn't very long, and I want to hear all that the little man can tell me.' The little man crept closer to Robert, and looked confidingly into the barrister's grey eyes. "'I like you very much,' he said. "'I was frightened of you when you came before, because I was shy.' I am not shy now. I am nearly six years old." Robert patted the boy's head encouragingly, but he was not looking at little George. He was watching the fair-haired widow, who had moved to the window, and was looking out at the patch of waste ground. "'You're rather fidgety about some one, ma'am, I'm afraid,' said Robert. She colored violently as the barrister made this remark, and answered him in a confused manner. "'I was looking for Mr. Malden, sir,' she said. He'll be so disappointed if he doesn't see you. You know who I am, then? No, sir, but— The boy interrupted her by dragging a little jewelled watch from his bosom and showing it to Robert. This is the watch the pretty lady gave me, he said. I've got it now, but I haven't had it long, because the jeweller who cleans it is an idle man, Grandpa says, and always keeps it such a long time. And Grandpa says it will have to be cleaned again because of the taxes— he always takes it to be cleaned when there's taxes. But he says if he were to lose it, the pretty lady would give me another. Do you know the pretty lady?" "'No, Georgie, but tell me about her.' Mrs. Plowson made another descent upon the boy. She was armed with a pocket-handkerchief this time, and displayed great anxiety about the state of little George's nose. But Robert warded off the dreaded weapon, and drew the child away from his tormentor. "'The boy will do very well, ma'am he said, if you'll be good enough to let him alone for five minutes. Now, Georgie, suppose you sit on my knee and tell me all about the pretty lady." The child clambered from the table on to Mr. Audley's knees, assisting his descent by a very unceremonious manipulation of his guardian's coat-collar. "'I'll tell you all about the pretty lady,' he said, "'because I like you very much. Grandpa told me not to tell anybody, but I'll tell you, you know, because I like you, and because you're going to take me to school. The pretty lady came here one night, long ago, oh, so long ago," said the boy, shaking his head, with a face whose solemnity was expressive of some prodigious lapse of time. She came when I was not nearly so big as I am now, and she came at night, after I'd gone to bed, and she came up into my room, and sat upon the bed and cried, and she left the watch under my pillow, and she—'Why do you make faces at me, Mrs. Plowson? I may tell this gentleman,' 
Georgie added, suddenly addressing the widow who was standing behind Robert's shoulder. Mrs. Plowson mumbled some confused apology, to the effect that she was afraid Master George was troublesome. "'Suppose you wait till I say so, ma'am, before you stop the little fellow's mouth,' said Robert Audley sharply. "'A suspicious person might think from your manner that Mr. Malden and you had some conspiracy between you, and that you were afraid of what the boy's talk may let slip.' He rose from his chair, and looked full at Mrs. Plowson as he said this. The fair-haired widow's face was as white as her cap when she tried to answer him, and her pale lips were so dry that she was compelled to wet them with her tongue before the words would come. The little boy relieved her embarrassment. "'Don't be cross to Mrs. Plowson,' he said. "'Mrs. Plowson is very kind to me. Mrs. Plowson is Matilda's mother. You don't know Matilda. Poor Matilda was always crying. She was ill. She—' The boy was stopped by the sudden appearance of Mr. Malden, who stood on the threshold of the parlour door, staring at Robert Audley with a half-drunken, half-terrified aspect, scarcely consistent with the dignity of a retired naval officer. The servant-girl, breathless and panting, stood close behind her master. Early in the day, though it was, the old man's speech was thick and confused, as he addressed himself fiercely to Mrs. Plowson. "'You're a prit creature to call yourself sensible woman,' he said. "'Why don't you take the child away, or wash its face?' Do you want to ruin me? Do you want to destroy me? Take the child away! Mr. Audley, sir, I'm very glad to see you, very happy to see you in mumble abode," the old man added with tipsy politeness, dropping into a chair as he spoke, and trying to look steadily at his unexpected visitor. Whatever this man's secrets are, thought Robert, as Mrs. Plowson hustled little George Talboys out of the room. That woman has no unimportant share of them. Whatever the mystery may be, it grows darker and thicker at every step. But I try in vain to draw back or to stop short upon the road, for a stronger hand than my own is pointing the way to my lost friend's unknown grave. End of chapter 20《Chapter Twenty One of Lady Audley's Secret》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty One Little Georgie Leaves His Old Home. I am going to take your grandson away with me, Mr. Malden. Robert said gravely, as Mrs. Plowson retired with her young charge. The old man's drunken imbecility was slowly clearing away, like the heavy mists of a London fog, through which the feeble sunshine struggles dimly to appear. The very uncertain radiance of Lieutenant Malden's intellect took a considerable time in piercing the hazy vapours of rum and water, but the flickering light at last faintly glimmered athwart the clouds, and the old man screwed his poor wits to the sticking-point. "'Yes, yes.' he said, feebly. "'Take the boy away from his poor old grandfather. I always thought so.' "'You always thought that I should take him away?' Scrutinizing the half-drunken countenance with a searching glance. "'Why did you think so, Mr. Malden?' The fogs of intoxication got the better of the light of sobriety for a moment, and the lieutenant answered vaguely, "'Thought so, cause I thought so.' Meeting the young barrister's impatient frown, he made another effort, and the light glimmered again. 
because I thought you or his father would fetch him away. When I was last in this house, Mr. Malden, you told me that George Tallboys had sailed for Australia. Yes, yes, I know, I know, the old man answered confusedly, shuffling his scanty limp gray hairs with his two wandering hands. I know, but he might have come back, mightn't he? He was restless and—and and queer in his mind, perhaps, sometimes. He might have come back. He repeated this two or three times in feeble, muttering tones, groping about on the littered mantelpiece for a dirty-looking clay pipe, and filling and lighting it with hands that trembled violently. Robert Audley watched those poor, withered, tremulous fingers dropping shreds of tobacco upon the hearth-rug, and scarcely able to kindle a lucifer for their unsteadiness. Then walking once or twice up and down the little room, he left the old man to take a few puffs from the great consoler. Presently he turned suddenly upon the half-pay lieutenant with a dark solemnity in his handsome face. "'Mr. Malden,' he said, slowly watching the effect of every syllable as he spoke, "'George Tallboys never sailed for Australia. That I know. More than this, he never came to Southampton, and the lie you told me on the 8th of last September was dictated to you by the telegraphic message which you received on that day.' The dirty clay pipe dropped from the tremulous hand, and shivered against the iron fender, but the old man made no effort to find a fresh one. He sat trembling in every limb, and looking, heaven knows how piteously, at Robert Audley. "'The lie was dictated to you, and you repeated your lesson. But you no more saw George Tallboys here on the 7th of September than I see him in this room now. You thought you had burnt the telegraphic message, but you had only burnt a part of it.' The remainder is in my possession. Lieutenant Malden was quite sober now. "'What have I done?' he murmured hopelessly. "'Oh, my God, what have I done?' "'At two o'clock on the 7th of September last,' continued the pitiless, accusing voice, "'George Tallboys was seen alive and well at a house in Essex.' Robert paused to see the effect of these words. They had produced no change in the old man. He still sat trembling from head to foot— and staring with the fixed and solid gaze of some helpless wretch whose every sense is gradually becoming numbed by terror. "'At two o'clock on that day,' remarked Robert Audley, "'my poor friend was seen alive and well at—the house of which I speak. From that hour to this I have never been able to hear that he has been seen by any living creature. I have taken such steps as must have resulted in procuring the information of his whereabouts, were he alive. I have done this patiently and carefully.' at first even hopefully. Now I know that he is dead." Robert Audley had been prepared to witness some considerable agitation in the old man's manner, but he was not prepared for the terrible anguish, the ghastly terror, which convulsed Mr. Malden's haggard face as he uttered the last word. "'No, no, no, no!' reiterated the lieutenant in a shrill, half-screaming voice. "'No, no, for God's sake, don't say that! Don't think it! Don't let me think it! Don't let me dream of it! Not dead! Anything but dead! Hidden away, perhaps! Bribed to keep out of the way, perhaps! But not dead! Not dead! Not dead!" He cried these words aloud, like one beside himself, beating his hands upon his gray head, and rocking backward and forward in his chair. His feeble hands trembled no longer. They were strengthened by some convulsive force that gave him a new power. I believe, said Robert, in the same solemn, relentless voice, that my friend left Essex, and I believe he died on the 7th of September last. 
The wretched old man, still beating his hands among his thin gray hair, slid from his chair to the ground and groveled at Robert's feet. "'Oh, no! No, for God's! No!' he shrieked hoarsely. "'No! You don't know what you say! You don't know what your words mean!' "'I know their weight and value only too well, as well as I see you do, Mr. Malden. God help us!' "'Oh, what am I doing? What am I doing?' muttered the old man feebly. Then, raising himself from the ground with an effort, he drew himself to his full height, and said, in a manner which was new to him, and which was not without a certain dignity of his own, that dignity which must always be attached to unutterable misery, in whatever form it may appear, he said gravely, "'You have no right to come here and terrify a man who has been drinking, and who is not quite himself. You have no right to do it, Mr. Audley. Even the—' The officer, sir, who—who—he did not stammer, but his lips trembled so violently that his words seemed to be shaken into pieces by their motion. The officer, I repeat, sir, who arrests a—thief, or a—he stopped to wipe his lips, and to still them if he could by doing so, which he could not—a thief, or a murderer. His voice died suddenly away upon the last word and it was only by the motion of those trembling lips that Robert knew what he meant. "'Gives him fair warning, sir, fair warning that he may say nothing which shall commit himself, or—or—other people. The—the the law, sir, has that amount of mercy for a—a a suspected criminal. But you, sir, you come to my house, and—and and you come at a time when—when, when contrary to my usual habits— which, as people will tell you, are sober, you take the opportunity to terrify me, and it is not right, sir, it is— Whatever he would have said died away into inarticulate gasps, which seemed to choke him, and sinking into a chair, he dropped his face upon the table, and wept aloud. Perhaps in all the dismal scenes of domestic misery which had been acted in those spare and dreary houses, in all the petty miseries, the burning shames, the cruel sorrows— the bitter disgraces which own poverty for their father, there had never been such a scene as this. An old man hiding his face from the light of day, and sobbing aloud in his wretchedness. Robert Audley contemplated the painful picture with a hopeless and pitying face. "'If I had known this,' he thought, "'I might have spared him. It would have been better, perhaps, to have spared him.' The shabby room— the dirt, the confusion, the figure of the old man with his gray head upon the soiled tablecloth, amid the muddled debris of a wretched dinner, grew blurred before the sight of Robert Audley as he thought of another man, as old as this one, but ah, how widely different in every other quality, who might come by and by to feel the same, or even a worse anguish, and to shed, perhaps, yet bitterer tears. The moment in which the tears rose to his eyes and dimmed the piteous scene before him, was long enough to take him back to Essex, and to show him the image of his uncle, stricken by agony and shame. "'Why do I go on with this?' he thought. "'How pitiless I am, and how relentlessly I am carried on! It is not myself. It is the hand which is beckoning me further and further upon the dark road, whose end I dare not dream of.' He thought this, and a hundred times more than this, whilst the old man sat with his face still hidden, wrestling with his anguish, but without power to keep it down. "'Mr. Malden,' Robert Audley said, after a pause, 
I do not ask you to forgive me for what I have brought upon you, for the feeling is strong within me that it must have come to you sooner or later, if not through me, through some one else. There are—he stopped for a moment, hesitating. The sobbing did not cease. It was sometimes low, sometimes loud, bursting out with fresh violence, or dying away for an instant, but never ceasing. There are some things which, as people say, cannot be hidden. I think there is truth in that common saying which had its origin in that old worldly wisdom which people gathered from experience and not from books. If—if if I were content to let my friend rest in his hidden grave, it is but likely that some stranger who had never heard the name of George Talboys might fall by the remotest accident upon the secret of his death. To-morrow, perhaps, or ten years hence, or in another generation, when the—the the hand that wronged him is as cold as his own. If I could let the matter rest, if—if if I could leave England for ever, and purposely fly from the possibility of ever coming across another clue to the secret, I would do it. I would gladly, thankfully do it. But I cannot. A hand which is stronger than my own beckons me on. I wish to take no base advantage of you, less than of all other people. But I must go on. I must go on. If there is any warning you could give to any one, give it. If the secret toward which I am travelling day by day, hour by hour, involves any one in whom you have an interest, let that person fly before I come to the end. Let them leave this country. Let them leave all who know them, all whose peace their wickedness has endangered. Let them go away. They shall not be pursued. But if they slight your warning— if they try to hold their present position in defiance of what it will be in your power to tell them, let them beware of me, for when the hour comes, I swear that I will not spare them." The old man looked up for the first time, and wiped his wrinkled face upon a ragged silk handkerchief. "'I declare to you that I do not understand you,' he said. "'I solemnly declare to you that I cannot understand, and I do not believe that George Talboys is dead.' I would give ten years of my own life if I could see him alive," answered Robert, sadly. I am sorry for you, Mr. Malden. I am sorry for all of us. I do not believe that my son-in-law is dead," said the lieutenant. I do not believe that the poor lad is dead. He endeavoured in a feeble manner to show to Robert Audley that his wild outburst of anguish had been caused by his grief for the loss of George, but the pretense was miserably shallow. Mrs. Plowson re-entered the room, leading little Georgie, whose face shone with that brilliant polish which yellow soap and friction can produce upon the human countenance. "'Dear heart alive!' exclaimed Mrs. Plowson. "'What has the poor old gentleman been taking on about? We could hear him in the passage, sobbing awful!' Little George crept up to his grandfather, and smoothed the wet and wrinkled face with his pudgy hand. "'Don't cry, Grandpa,' he said. "'Don't cry.' You shall have my watch to be cleaned, and the kind jeweller shall lend you the money to pay the taxman while he cleans the watch. I don't mind, Grandpa. Let's go to the jeweller—the jeweller in High Street, you know, with golden balls painted upon his door, to show that he comes from Lumbar—Lumbardshire," uh, said the boy, making a dash at the name. Come, Grandpa. The little fellow took the jewelled toy from his bosom and made for the door, proud of being possessed of a talisman, which he had seen so often made useful. "'There are wolves at Southampton,' he said, with rather a triumphant nod to Robert Audley. "'My grandpa says when he takes my watch that he does it to keep the wolf from the door. Are there wolves where you live?' 
The young barrister did not answer the child's question, but stopped him as he was dragging his grandfather toward the door. "'Your grandpapa does not want the watch to-day, Georgie,' he said gravely. "'Why is he sorry, then?' said George naively. "'When he wants the watch he is always sorry, and beats his poor forehead so—the boy stopped to pantomime with his small fists—and says that she—the pretty lady, I think he means—uses him very hard, and that he can't keep the wolf from the door. And then I say, "'Grandpa, have the watch!' And then he takes me in his arms, and says, "'Oh, my blessed angel! How can I rob my blessed angel?' And then he cries. But not like to-day. Not loud, you know. Only tears running down his poor cheeks, not so that you could hear him in the passage. Painful as the child's prattle was to Robert Audley, it seemed a relief to the old man. He did not hear the boys talk, but walked two or three times up and down the little room, and smoothed his rumpled hair, and suffered his cravat to be arranged by Mrs. Plowson, who seemed very anxious to find out the cause of his agitation. "'Poor dear old gentleman!' she said, looking at Robert. "'What has happened to upset him so?' "'His son-in-law is dead,' answered Mr. Audley, fixing his eyes upon Mrs. Plowson's sympathetic face. "'He died within a year and a half after the death of Helen Tallboys, who lies buried in Ventnor churchyard.' The face into which he was looking changed very slightly, but the eyes that had been looking at him shifted away as he spoke, and Mrs. Plowson was obliged to moisten her white lips with her tongue before she answered him. "'Poor Mr. Tallboy's dead,' she said. "'That is bad news indeed, sir.' Little George looked wistfully up at his guardian's face as this was said. "'Who's dead?' he said. "'George Tallboy's is my name. Who's dead?' "'Another person whose name is Tallboy's, Georgie.' "'Poor person! Will he go to the pit-hole?' The boy had that notion of death which is generally imparted to children by their wise elders, and which always leads the infant mind to the open grave, and rarely carries it any higher. "'I should like to see him put in the pit-hole,' Georgie remarked after a pause. He had attended several infant funerals in the neighbourhood, and was considered valuable as a mourner on account of his interesting appearance. He had come, therefore, to look upon the ceremony of interment as a solemn festivity, in which cake and wine and a carriage-drive were the leading features. "'You have no objection to my taking Georgie away with me, Mr. Malden?' asked Robert Audley. The old man's agitation had very much subsided by this time. He had found another pipe stuck behind the tawdry frame of the looking-glass, and was trying to light it with a bit of twisted newspaper. "'You do not object, Mr. Malden?' "'No, sir.' "'No, sir, you are his guardian, and you have a right to take him where you please. "'He has been a very great comfort to me in my lonely old age, but I have been prepared to lose him. "'I—I I may not have always done my duty to him, sir, and—in the way of schooling, and—and boots. "'The number of boots which boys of his age wear out, sir, is not easily realized by the mind of a young man like yourself. "'He has been kept away from school, perhaps, sometimes.' and occasionally worn shabby boots when our funds have got low. But he's not been unkindly treated. No, sir, if you were to question him for a week, I don't think you'd hear that his poor old grandfather ever said a harsh word to him." Upon this, Georgie, perceiving the distress of his old protector, set up a terrible howl, and declared that he would never leave him. "'Mr. Malden,' said Robert Audley, with a tone which was half mournful, half compassionate, "'when I looked at my position last night, I did not believe that I could ever come to think it more painful than I thought it then. I can only say, 
God have mercy upon us all. I feel it my duty to take the child away, but I shall take him straight from your house to the best school in Southampton, and I give you my honour that I will extort nothing from his innocent simplicity which can in any manner—I mean, he said, breaking off abruptly, I mean this, I will not seek to come one step nearer the secret through him. I—I I am not a detective officer, and I do not think the most accomplished detective would like to get his information from a child." The old man did not answer. He sat with his face shaded by his hand, and with his extinguished pipe between the listless fingers of the other. "'Take the boy away, Mrs. Plowson,' he said, after a pause. "'Take him away and put his things on. He is going with Mr. Audley.' "'Which I do say that it's not kind of the gentleman to take his poor grandpa's pet away,' Mrs. Plowson exclaimed suddenly, with respectful indignation. "'Hush, Mrs. Plowson,' the old man answered piteously. "'Mr. Audley is the best judge. I—I I haven't many years to live. I shan't trouble anybody long.' The tears oozed slowly through the dirty fingers with which he shaded his bloodshot eyes as he said this. "'God knows I never injured your friend, sir,' he said by and by, when Mrs. Plowson and Georgie had returned. "'Nor even wished him any ill. He was a good son-in-law to me, better than many a son. I never did him any willful wrong, sir. I—I I spent his money, perhaps, but I am sorry for it. I am very sorry for it now. But I don't believe he is dead. No, sir, no, I don't believe it!' exclaimed the old man, dropping his hand from his eyes and looking with new energy at Robert Audley. "'I don't believe it, sir. How—how how should he be dead?' Robert did not answer this eager questioning. He shook his head mournfully, and, walking to the little window, looked out across a row of straggling geraniums at the dreary patch of waste ground on which the children were at play. Mrs. Plowson returned with little Georgie muffled in a coat and comforter, and Robert took the boy's hand. The little fellow sprung toward the old man, and, clinging about him, kissed the dirty tears from his faded cheeks. "'Don't be sorry for me, Grandpa,' he said. "'I am going to school to learn to be a clever man, and I shall come home to see you and Mrs. Plowson, shan't I?' he added, turning to Robert. "'Yes, my dear, by and by.' "'Take him away, sir, take him away,' cried Mr. Malden. "'You are breaking my heart.' The little fellow trotted away contentedly at Robert's side. He was very well pleased at the idea of going to school, though he had been happy enough with his drunken old grandfather— who had always displayed a maudlin affection for the pretty child, and had done his best to spoil Georgie, by letting him have his own way in everything, in consequence of which indulgence Master Tallboys had acquired a taste for late hours, hot suppers of the most indigestible nature, and sips of rum and water from his grandfather's glass. He communicated his sentiments upon many subjects to Robert Audley, as they walked to the Dolphin Hotel, but the barrister did not encourage him to talk. It was no very difficult matter to find a good school in such a place as Southampton. Robert Audley was directed to a pretty house between the bar and the avenue, and leaving Georgie to take care of a good-natured waiter, who seemed to have nothing to do but to look out of the window and whisk invisible dust off the brightly polished tables, the barrister walked up the high street toward Mr. Marchmont's academy for young gentlemen. He found Mr. Marchmont a very sensible man, and he met a file of orderly-looking young gentlemen walking townward under the escort of a couple of ushers as he entered the house. He told the schoolmaster that little George Tallboys had been left in his charge by a dear friend, who had sailed for Australia some months before, and whom he believed to be dead. He confided him to Mr. Marchmont's especial care, 
and he further requested that no visitors should be admitted to see the boy unless accredited by a letter from himself. Having arranged the matter in a very few business-like words, he returned to the hotel to fetch Georgie. He found the little man on intimate terms with the idle waiter, who had been directing Master Georgie's attention to the different objects of interest in the high street. Poor Robert had about as much notion of the requirements of a child as he had of those of a white elephant. He had catered for silkworms, guinea-pigs, dormice, canary-birds, and dogs without number during his boyhood, but he had never been called upon to provide for a young person of five years old. He looked back five-and-twenty years, and tried to remember his own diet at the age of five. "'I've a vague recollection of getting a good deal of bread and milk and boiled mutton,' he thought, "'and I've another vague recollection of not liking them. I wonder if this boy likes bread and milk and boiled mutton.' He stood pulling his thick moustache and staring thoughtfully at the child for some minutes before he could get any further. "'I dare say you're hungry, Georgie,' he said at last. The boy nodded, and the waiter whisked some more invisible dust from the nearest table as a preparatory step toward laying a cloth. "'Perhaps you'd like some lunch?' Mr. Audley suggested, still pulling his moustache. The boy burst out laughing. "'Lunch!' he cried. "'Why, it's afternoon, and I've had my dinner!' Robert Audley felt himself brought to a standstill. What refreshment could he possibly provide for a boy who called it afternoon at three o'clock? "'You shall have some bread and milk, Georgie,' he said presently. "'Waiter, bread and milk, and a pint of hock.' Master Tallboys made a wry face. "'I never have bread and milk,' he said. "'I don't like it. I like what Grandpa calls something savoury. I should like a veal cutlet.' "'Grandpa told me he dined here once, and the veal cutlets were lovely,' Grandpa said. "'Please, may I have a veal cutlet, with egg and bread-crumb, you know, and lemon-juice, you know?' he added to the waiter. "'Grandpa knows the cook here. The cook's such a nice gentleman, and once gave me a shilling when Grandpa brought me here. The cook wears better clothes than Grandpa, better than yours, even,' said Master Georgie, pointing to Robert's rough greatcoat with a depreciating nod. Robert Audley stared aghast. How was he to deal with this epicure of five years old, who rejected bread and milk, and asked for veal cutlets? "'I'll tell you what I'll do with you, little Georgie,' he exclaimed after a pause. "'I'll give you a dinner.' The waiter nodded briskly. "'Upon my word, sir,' he said approvingly, "'I think the little gentleman will know how to eat it.' "'I'll give you a dinner, Georgie,' repeated Robert. "'Some stewed eels, a little julienne, a dish of cutlets, a bird, and a pudding. What do you say to that, Georgie?' "'I don't think the young gentleman will object to it when he sees it, sir,' said the waiter. "'Eels, julienne, cutlets, bird, pudding. I'll go and tell the cook, sir. What time, sir?' "'Well, we'll say six, and Master Georgie will get to his new school by bedtime. You can contrive to amuse the child for this afternoon, I dare say. I have some business to settle, and shan't be able to take him out. I shall sleep here to-night. Good-bye, Georgie. Take care of yourself, and try and get your appetite in order against six o'clock.' Robert Audley left the boy in charge of the idle waiter, and strolled down to the waterside, choosing that lonely bank which leads away under the mouldering walls of the town toward the little villages beside the narrowing river. He had purposely avoided the society of the child, and he walked through the light drifting snow till the early darkness closed upon him. He went back to the town and made inquiries at the station about the trains for Dorsetshire. "'I shall start early to-morrow morning,' he thought, "'and see George's father before nightfall. I will tell him all.' all but the interest which I take in, in the suspected person, and he shall decide what is next to be done. Master Georgie did very good justice to the dinner which Robert had ordered. He drank Bass's pale ale to an extent which considerably alarmed his entertainer, and enjoyed himself amazingly, 
showing an appreciation of roast pheasant and bread-sauce which was beyond his years. At eight o'clock a fly was brought out for his accommodation, and he departed in the highest spirits, with a sovereign in his pocket and a letter from Robert to Mr. Marchmont, enclosing a cheque for the young gentleman's outfit. "'I'm glad I'm going to have new clothes,' he said, as he bade Robert good-bye, "'for Mrs. Plowson has mended the old ones ever so many times. She can have them now for Billy.' "'Who's Billy?' Robert asked, laughing at the boy's chatter. "'Billy is poor Matilda's little boy. He's a common boy, you know. Matilda was common, but she—' But the flyman snapping his whip at that moment, the old horse jogged off, and Robert Audley heard no more of Matilda. End of chapter 21「Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for 129 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.